Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And a very good afternoon to Cresta in the Afternoon. I am not, as you can gather, Al Cresta. I'm Matthew Bunsen filling in for Al today, and it's a privilege always uh, to fill in for Al from time to time. As I always say, I cannot possibly replace Al, who could... But uh, every once in a while, I get the privilege of uh, stepping in uh, and uh, taking over the show. And it is a joy to be here with you. For those who may not be familiar with me, I am vice president and editorial director for EWTN News, also the creator of the Doctors of the Church uh, documentary series for EWTN. And in my spare time, I, I write books. My main work, however, is in news. And let's just say that the new year has started off with a very busy news cycle. Uh, we have the ongoing fallout of uh, fiducia supplicans, uh, the decree from the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith, uh, written, drafted, and approved by Pope Francis, but drafted and uh, sent out uh, by the recently installed prefect for the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith, Cardinal Victor Manuel Fernandez, uh, who himself this last week was also no stranger to additional controversy because of a book that has resurfaced, uh, something that he wrote all the way back in 1998 on mystical passion uh, that some have uh, raised some serious questions about its content. A lot of attention, though, has been focused on the response uh, to the Vatican's guidelines, fiducia supplicants, on blessings of irregular relationships and, in particular, of um, same-sex couples and whether or not the Church can bless them. According to the decree, we can, uh, but that uh, came with a very long list of, uh, let's just say, fine print that has to be followed. That uh, has uh, raised many an eyebrow and quite a bit of resistance from around the world. And uh, in particular, we can talk about the Africans. The bishops of Africa have issued a letter written by Cardinal Fridolin Ambongo, the president of the Symposium of Episcopal Conferences of Africa and Madagascar, basically representing the whole of Africa's bishops, the whole of the African church, basically saying uh, that uh, there will be no blessing for homosexual couples in the African churches. A lot to unpack with this story, uh, a lot of other stories to discuss, and I have the Great joy being joined uh, for this hour coming up by Shannon Mullen, editor-in-chief of the National Catholic Register. Also, it's hard to imagine, but we are actually at the second Sunday in ordinary time. And that uh, means uh, that we're going to have a beautiful gospel reflection uh, from Peggy Stanton, as a no stranger to this show. A lot to talk about in this hour, but first, here's Steve Clark with the news. Thanks, Matthew. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News. For Friday, January 12th, it's the Feast of St. Marguerite Bourgeois. Today's news is brought to you by Ave Maria University. Your vocation location is at avemaria.edu. The U.S. and the United Kingdom are teaming up to take down attackers in Yemen who are targeting ships in the Red Sea. Texas Republican Congressman Mike McCall says this is the right move. My view is it's about time. 
that we struck back. The head of the House Foreign Affairs Committee has been critical of the Biden administration for standing on the sidelines when our allies were attacked overseas. Some House Democrats, though, voiced outrage over the airstrikes. They're upset that Congress wasn't consulted first. Every state is under some sort of weather watch or advisory. The Midwest is most at risk with an intensifying snow and blizzard conditions. Forecasters say the northern plains could see temperatures 60 degrees below normal starting Saturday, with single digits expected as far south as Amarillo, Texas, by Monday. Bishop Robert Barron is urging Catholics in Minnesota to oppose assisted suicide legislation. Barron, who is serving as Bishop of Winona, Rochester, posted an article on his Word on Fire website last week that called physician-assisted suicide the slipperiest of slopes. He argues that life is a gift from God and that death can't be considered a matter of personal choice. The proposal will be debated by state lawmakers when the next session of the legislature begins on February 10th. Hunter Biden pleaded not guilty to federal tax charges in a Los Angeles courtroom. Jessica Levinson with Loyola Law School says the president's son will have a hard time beating some of the charges. So now there is, I think, the very real risk that this case goes to trial, that a jury does find guilty on at least some of these nine charges, and therefore that there could be time in prison. Prosecutors claim engaged in a four-year scheme to avoid paying fees of at least $1.4 million in federal taxes. From your AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Well, as I mentioned at the top of the hour, there has been a massive global response to fiducia supplicants, uh, the decree from the Dicaster for the Doctrine of the Faith uh, relating to blessings, uh, non-liturgical blessings uh, for those couples who are in irregular situations and same-sex couples. Note, uh, again, the stress on the word couples and not union, something that uh, the dicastery went to some lengths to remind everyone while it tried to restate as well the church's teachings on marriage. This has not satisfied many of the bishops around the world, including, apparently, the whole of the African continent. Uh, Their bishops uh, have responded forcefully. Uh, with a letter issued, and as I mentioned, written by Cardinal Fridolin Ambongo, basically saying there will be no blessings for homosexual couples in the African churches. This is just one of many stories that uh, have been percolating over the last days. If you thought that it was going to be a slow start to the new year, well, all of us were wrong. Uh, To help us uh, talk about this, to understand more of what's going on, I'm I'm delighted to be joined by uh, Shannon Mullen the editor-in-chief of the National Catholic Register, uh, who's uh, a seasoned journalist, a a veteran of newsrooms, and I'm honored to say a friend. So, uh, Shannon, great to be with you. Thanks. I'm I'm most proud of the last part there. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Thank you for coming on. It has been, I know, a busy news cycle already. No one could have anticipated just days before Christmas that we would be talking about blessings of same-sex couples. No, it, yes, uh, I was joking today earlier today that uh, sometimes in recent weeks I feel like I'm working for the Fernandez News <laughs> Network uh, because every every few hours, every few days, there seems to be another um, another big drop from mic drop from uh, Cardinal Victor Manuel Fernandez, and um, and we were talking about it that. Looking at the Dicastry's website, yes, <laughs> and uh, uh, some of your listeners might know it's, it's possible to kind of go back in time online and look at uh, what 
different websites look like in, in yes. different moments of time. The so the Wayback Machine. The Wayback Machine. Very cool. And we did that for the the DDF's uh, website where they're posting their releases and uh, looked back uh, a year ago and <laughs> it was really telling. It was a snapshot of a major shift in the in the culture of that dicastery, which is you know the really preeminent dicastery. Yes, and there were just a a few postings uh, in the DDF. Pre Fernandez, I think some of them were maybe from 2021 and ironically enough, the, the statement that uh, we don't have the authority to bless same-sex couples it was on there. Yes, yes. so uh, we've joked that uh, as journalists, we've bookmarked that page, uh, and it, it, it becomes part of your regular routine uh, in in looking at Vatican news is to go to the DDF and see because you just don't know and then you've had the not only has the ddf itself been so busy but you fernandez himself has given i've lost count of the number of interviews uh there was a big one that that posted today in a, in a spanish uh outlet uh that was packed with a lot of new information so it's just been a major shakeup and a major cultural shift and it's gotten the year off to uh a whirlwind start so there seem to be two tracks that we have to follow with Fernandez. Uh, the, the first is a, his work as the prefect. So we've got all of these new decrees, including fiducia supplicants. Uh, and I know I keep saying the name because it, it keeps coming up, as well as a clarification of that. But then he himself has become a major news story, which is also highly unusual. We had a high-profile prefect in Joseph Ratzinger prior to his election as Pope Benedict XVI, but it certainly didn't reach these dimensions. Yes, and you would know better the exact number of years that Ratzinger was in that post. It, about 24. About 24. So yeah. I would uh, make a little side bet with you that Fernandez has given more interviews <laughs> <laughs> in his first uh, few months than maybe uh, Ratzinger uh, did uh, uh, over the course of those 25 years. So, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's quite remarkable. It's just a, a different person in that role. So how is he responding uh, to the controversy surrounding his book? Yeah, the book, uh, he responded. So that news um, uh, hit on, was it Monday? It's been such a crazy week. Yeah. So by the end of that day, Monday, he had responded uh, to, I think, a couple of different outlets, including Crux. And he basically said, well, you know, something I wrote uh, back in the 1990s as a, as a younger priest, I thought it made sense at the time. It's not something that I would write uh, today. And I, and I feel, you know, he obviously wasn't happy that it had been circulated or, or rediscovered and um, and shared widely. It's not something that he would um, do that. And and he said one of the reasons for it is because of the danger that it would be misinterpreted. So uh, that was a classic sort of snapshot of Fernandez. And it's just set the, the controversy aside for a moment. He's a fascinating figure because he does engage very quickly mm -hmm. on these controversies. So he's out there that same day and seemed to sort of, um, you know, shrug it off, right. uh, really. And um, He said similar things about the now equally controversial, or perhaps not equally, but the controversial book on kissing. 
uh, where he said, well, looking back, I probably wouldn't write it today, which begs the question why he wrote it in the first place. <laughs> uh, but then there have also been, especially in like progressive Catholic media, uh, journalists, uh, trying to make a comparison between this book and, say, Love and Responsibility by Carol Wotiba, John Paul II. Does he make that comparison himself? Uh, to to a degree, I mean, he definitely alludes to it, and he's had more recent things to say uh, in this in this uh, Spanish language um, report today about that. But um, yes, there's there's allusions to um, um, uh, JP two and his theology of the body, mm-hmm. um, and other people have made that that comparison. Of course. John Paul never disavowed that, <laughs> exactly. that work, and uh, there was try to gather up all the copies and make sure that no one could ever read them. No, again. and uh, not only that, but he really doubled down on it and, and spoke and, and further developed it over his pontificate. So there's a big difference there, and there's some very important differences in the works themselves. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the response uh, to this decree, fiducia supplicans, from the bishops around the world. Uh, has, I think, did it catch the Holy See by surprise? I, I, I don't see how it couldn't have. Um, although in retrospect, you know, maybe there's maybe there's some some second guessing uh, internally. Like, well, was this such a great idea to to, <laughs> to sneak this in right before Christmas, the week before Christmas? Apparently, I, with very little consultation ahead of time. Yeah, the the timing was really awkward and really, uh, frankly, inappropriate. Right for the Vatican to do that and and overshadow the celebration of Christmas. I, I, you know, I've just personally uh, felt that way, and many others I did too. Um, it's been extraordinary. Just to give you a little sneak peek for next week, so uh, next Thursday will be the one-month mark uh, since uh, Fiducia Supplicants was released. And we're, f- at the register, we're trying to kind of wrap our arms around, uh, minds around this extraordinary reaction and blowback that, that has unfolded in, uh, in the past month. So they're really, I mean... I, you know, we'd lean on people like yourselves to know if there's any real historical precedent for that thing, yeah. uh, for that kind of reaction. Yeah, well, I think uh, the, the blush response in some ways, the comparison has been made to some of the response to Humani Vitae. It's kind of a mirror, however, because Humani Vitae uh, was itself controversial in part because there are so many people dissenting from church teaching. In this case, it's a big debate about what Fiducia actually says. And it, it restates church teaching, but then seems to go well beyond uh, what we have seen previously. Mm-hmm. There's a great piece, uh, as we're speaking, there's a very good piece by uh, Jonathan Lidl on the yeah. register side. Um, and it talks about the fact that, um, never mind for a moment what it actually says, right? right. The document, it's how it's going to be received and, 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 and interpreted or misinterpreted. And Jonathan's point is, without enforcement of abu- uh, against the abuses, uh, you're not supposed to have. Um, this isn't supposed to be a public blessing. Right. This isn't supposed to be something you invite your friends or a photographer. <laughs> 
Uh, it just happened to be from the New York <laughs> Times, yes, in, in one particular rather now famous case. Yeah, so, you know, we laugh about it and joke about it, but if there isn't any kind of uh, reining in of that kind of uh, reaction, then you're really going to have uh, kind of open heresy. Um, and and as uh, Fernandez himself says, there's you know makes the case there's nothing heretical about uh, fiducia supplicans if you actually read it, mm-hmm. but uh, certainly people can abuse what it says in a heretical way and even a schismatic way, which is boy you know, it's, you know very serious. So it's a crisis for the church right now, right? And it's it's a crisis for him, uh, having just essentially begun in this role. And uh, so in these interviews that he's been giving, do we have a snapshot or a sense of his awareness of the predicament uh, in some, in this case, somewhat self-created? Yes. And he's very relaxed. Is that a, is that a good description? <laughs> That'd be a fair description. He just seems at ease. Part of that is just his genius as a, as a, um, as a public figure, I think, and just being able to handle crises. Um, but he does seem to have an awareness uh, today. What he said was he revealed that uh, the dicastery is working on a new document related to life issues. Um, and I forget his exact wordings, but basically that, um, that it will set people's minds at ease. Uh, so, <laughs> suggesting that uh, this, the very people who are most alarmed about uh, this decree are the ones who are likely to be most satisfied with this document. It's, it's, so, I'm assuming it's going to be touching on gender ideology uh, and other areas of, of bioethics and, and morality. Yeah, which is frankly what's really needed. There is a great need for that yeah. kind of a document. Yeah. Well, Shannon, let's hold it there. I know you can uh, stay with me for one more segment because there's uh, a lot more to talk about. uh, And uh, you're the guy to do it. Shannon Mullen, the editor-in-chief of the National Catholic Register. You're listening to Cresta in the Afternoon. Please don't go anywhere. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchuk. Family life is a ministry. We tend to think of ministry as the churchy stuff we do at church, but the word ministry means doing any activity that communicates God's love to another person. When we help our family love and worship God every day at home, we're doing ministry. When our families cherish each other with Christ's love, we're doing ministry. When our family is kind to others, or when we invite others to our home for godly fun and fellowship, or when we try to attend to each other's needs generously and cheerfully, we're doing ministry by doing things that share God's love with others. The ministry of domestic church life is among the most important ministries of all. And discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life. Check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. Let us strive to know the Lord. Quick question to you and me right now. Is that what you and I are doing every single day? When you and I wake up every day, do we strive to know Jesus or not? In the Old Testament, in the same book of Hosea, a little bit later on, it's in chapter 14, the Lord says through the prophet, My people perish, or in another translation, my people are being destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. 
Not a lack of data. We got tons of data. Not a lack of information. We got a lot of information. Not just about things that are happening in the world. We got a lot of data, a lot of knowledge, a lot of information about God. But not a lot of intimacy with God. Not a lot of relationship with God. Not a lot of friendship. That's the cry of God's heart. God wants to give himself to us in the incredible gift of friendship. And we're not taking advantage of it. Maybe you've been hearing a lot about the need to make a spiritual communion while participating from home in a live-streamed or broadcast Mass. Maybe you've even prayed the prayer of spiritual communion. Spiritual communion is a concept that goes all the way back to the 4th century. It flourished in the Eastern Church and gradually moved west. Spiritual communion stresses the transcendence of God, where we unite our desires, intentions, and loves with the holy sacrifice of the Mass and the consecration of the Eucharist at the altar. Jesus, I embrace you and unite myself wholly to you. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. Accidents are the leading cause of life-threatening injuries, but few Americans are prepared. My Life Angels creates your pro-life healthcare durable power of attorney, accessible anytime on smartphones, and alerts loved ones if you enter a hospital ER, empowering them to protect you. You can protect yourself and your family. Use code AVE at checkout today, and My Life Angels will donate 35% of your initial membership to Ave Maria Radio. More information at MyLifeAngels.com. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Matthew Bunsen filling in for Al today, continuing my conversation with Shannon Mullen, Editor-in-Chief of the National Catholic Register. And we've been focusing a bit on the reaction globally to fiducia supplicants, uh, the decree from the Dicastery of the Doctrine of the Faith uh, relating to the possibility of granting Here's the key. Non-liturgical blessings to those in irregular situations or same-sex couples. In particular, we've been looking at the the reaction of the African church uh, and some other opinions that are being raised uh, that are of significance. And one of them, I know, Shannon, is from the Secretary of State, uh, Cardinal Pietro Parolin, who typically would be considered sort of the the number two man uh, in the Vatican, although I think that's a position now that's probably best given to uh, Cardinal Fernandez. Right. Yes. So, uh, yeah, this news just broke today, really, the uh, Paroline comments, which is um, what he said was that the blessing of gay couples touched a delicate point and that further study uh, would be needed. So uh, that's even just in that that brief, that's a pretty loaded comment. First of all, it's coming from such a senior um, official in the Vatican, um, 
and uh, suggesting that further study would be needed um, would seem to sort of contradict what the document itself said, that this was kind of the final word on this. This is a new way of blessing, a new understanding of blessing. Enough, right. enough said. Clearly, there's that isn't the final word. Well, the document itself wasn't, and uh, we had the clarification from Cardinal Fernandez. Now we've had uh, multiple interviews, if you've, if you've observed. Cardinal Parolin, though, it strikes me that this is a potentially very significant uh, development in the sense that are we seeing, even now within the, the Holy See, within the leadership of the Roman Curia, some real concerns over how this uh, entire thing has played out? Mm -hmm. And I think it also probably speaks to what you were alluding to was this declaration maybe didn't go through the normal vetting procedures that, yeah. have, that you would think a Vatican document is, where, where a lot of people are, a lot of eyeballs are on it, there's a lot of input. Uh, the sense you get is that this one was sort of fast-tracked and, and, um, and uh, not widely disseminated. And so, yeah, that, that speaks to that, that he sounds a little surprised himself by the document. Yeah. So. So we have this document. Uh, we have as well uh, some recent statements from the Holy Father that have continued to raise eyebrows, and that's uh, specifically uh, a comment he made about communism and the need for dialogue uh, with communism. By way of historical reference, the Church has been pretty clear uh, from the middle of the 19th century uh, when Marx and Engels were propagating their ideas, I think in particular of the 1937 uh, encyclical Divini Redemptoris uh, by Pius XI, it's worth just reiterating that he described atheistic communism as a system full of errors and sophisms, pseudo-ideal of justice, equality, and fraternity, and a certain false mysticism and had a very sharp contrast of it with what he would describe as a civitas humana, in other words, a humane society. So the church has been pretty clear, uh, but I understand Pope Francis is, is suggesting uh, dialogue is necessary, which uh, certainly, is, as Pope, is his right to suggest. Yeah, in, in my role, I learned something new every day about the church, and I, I didn't know there was this group, uh, DIALOP is the acronym, it... Um, the English translation is the Transversal Dialogue Project, uh, that this exists. And, and this is an association of uh, European leftist politicians and academics uh, that seeks to bridge Catholic social teaching and Marxist theory. And um, the little that I know about both would suggest that that bridge is going to need some pretty significant uh, uh, architectural uh, ingenuity <laughs> right. to, um, to bridge that span because there's, there's some, some basic, I guess, common ground, right? Uh, uh, you know, concern for uh, the ostensibly concern for uh, uh, underprivileged and, um, and also some uh, criticism of, of capitalism and the excesses of capitalism and things like that. But, um, uh, yes, this is another example of the Pope's uh, really firm belief in the in the power of dialogue to even bridge a divide as wide as this. And so he said uh, that uh, solidarity is not only a moral virtue but also a requirement of justice. And he talks about uh, don't give up, he said, uh, don't back off. 
and don't stop dreaming of a better world, for it is in imagination the ability to dream that intelligence, intuition, experience, and historical memory come together to make us be creative, take chances, and run risks. Now, there are some who would point out that um, atheistic communism uh, has massacred, murdered, and oppressed hundreds of millions over the decades, including the, the Catholic Church. So it, it, this is a, a sort of a classic Francis moment, isn't it, where he surprises people by suggesting that dialogue is necessary. Yeah, and I was curious to know, get your uh, input on the fact that he's from Latin America yes, and, uh, and South America. And so unlike many of us here in the United States, where I don't know a lot of Marxists, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and it's a different story in, in South America and, um, and much of Latin America, where that's just part of the reality and the part of the reality that the church exists in, mm -hmm. in those parts of the world. Well, I suppose you could make the case that at this point, there seem to be quite a few Marxists on university campuses in the United States, but <laughs> <laughs> perhaps even university presidents from time to time. But no, I, I think you raise a, a, a really important point, and that is uh, there are two aspects that uh, are worth noting. The first is, is as you say, he, from a Latin American environment, so his lived experience of capitalism is very different. And uh, no one would suggest that uh, Pope Francis is a Marxist, uh, but again, he has seen the impact potentially of capitalism uh, in the South American environment. Uh, the other is that um, the immediate comparison that, that some would make would be, okay, we've had a, a, an experiment of socialism and Catholic social thought in the form of uh, the extreme versions of liberation theology that, of course, were so robustly uh, critiqued by then-prefect of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, Joseph Ratzinger, who I think had the, probably the greatest analysis of liberation theology back in the day. And yet uh, Francis himself was no friend of liberation theology when he was uh, serving in South America. Yeah. Um, speaking of all of this, I wondered, uh, so now there's been a formal invitation uh, to the Pope uh, from the new president of Argentina to visit his homeland and to come back for the first time in his pontificate. Do you think that will happen? Yeah, Javier Malay, uh, I, I, I was surprised to be honest that it was a very formal type of an invitation. He'd been talking about it uh, throughout the campaign, I guess, uh, at, when he wasn't actually attacking Francis <laughs> <laughs> on the campaign trail. Uh, it, it's an interesting invitation. I know it is something that Francis has talked about. He, it has picked up way in here. It, it seems that Francis has talked more about this in the last year or so than he had in previous years. Mm -hmm. So I'm very curious as to what might have changed in Francis's own thinking that would propel him to want to do this. Yeah, um, it would be a fascinating uh, papal visit, for sure. Yeah. The timing is uh, a question. We have a canonization, I know, of an Argentinian. Uh, I think it's uh, is it Mother Matula, I think, is the nickname that has been given to her. That's supposed to take place in February, but that's more likely now to take place in Rome. Uh, so mm -hmm. there was some speculation that Francis might go to Argentina to do that. A potential other possible date uh, for a, a Francis visit to Argentina could be in September when he's potentially going to Quito, Ecuador for the International Eucharistic Congress. He'll be in that same hemisphere. But then we have playing into this uh, the obvious complications of Argentine politics. Uh, Javier Malay is a very different type of a, of a president. But then we also have the overhanging question of Francis's health. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, he's 87 and um, has a few trips lined up, but not not maybe as heavy as what he had this past year. Yeah, and um, so that's that's a big um, um, that would be a big journey, you know, for anyone at 87. I don't care how great of health you're in, right. and and let's face it, he's not in great health. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I mean, even today, I think he made an uh, observation that he was supposed to read an address to a group that was visiting in the Vatican, and he said, "I, I have bronchitis." Uh, which is this, he's had this now uh, some sort of a of a respiratory issue for some weeks. I'm not suggesting that he's uh, passing away or anything like that, but clearly uh, he hasn't been bouncing back from some of these health problems. Right, right. I'm sure his doctors have some strong opinions about his travel <laughs> schedule for the new year. So uh, we'll see what that develops. But it would be a fascinating trip and and kind of an interesting uh, full circle for him. Yeah. Um, as as Pope. He did say that uh, sort of cryptic comment uh, when he was asked last year when he went to Marseille, and then the point was made, I'm not traveling to France, I'm going to Marseille. Uh, and someone asked him, well, when are you going to go to France or to Germany? And he said, those will be at the end. Mm. Uh, and they haven't been scheduled, so Francis uh, clearly has no indication uh, that he's going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Argentina, I have the, the sense, is probably on that list, too. So we'll have to see what this brings. Closer to home for Francis, though, we had some really great news this week about the baldacchino of Gian Lorenzo Bernini that towers above uh, the magnificent high altar of St. Peter's. Yes. Uh, the news is that uh, thanks to the Knights of Columbus, uh, there's going to be a, a major restoration of that very interesting um, um, piece of architecture, really. Yeah. Um, and um, that it's something in the neighborhood of a million dollars that it's going to require. It's not going to shut down St. Peter's or anything. If you're planning on going to Rome, you'll still be able to see it. Maybe there'll be some work happening. But, yes, the Knights are making this this uh, possible. And anytime anything like that is happening inside St. Peter's, it's a, it's a big deal. It is. Yeah. And the Knights, uh, again, to their credit, have also funded – uh, quite a number of restoration projects over the decades. I can think of the facade of uh, St. Peter. I think it was finished uh, Carlo Moderno and under the design of Michelangelo under, I think it was Urban VIII, uh, the Barberini Pope, whose coat of arms is also on the Baldacchino uh, in St. Peter's. The thing that struck me that I remember about that is when they began sort of blasting uh, the stone, how multicolored it was. Everyone just assumed that it was this sort of the sandstone color. Uh, and yet it has this beautiful, beautiful colors in it. So, well, Shannon, we're out of time, but I really appreciate your coming on. And I know that uh, a lot of stories that you're covering and uh, you can find all of it at ncregister.com. Thank you, Matthew. All right. When we come back, we talk with Peggy Stanton about the readings for the second Sunday in Ordinary Time. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law. 
unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Millions of people have kicked off 2024 by making the traditional New Year's resolutions. Are you one of them? Are they related to your faith, your home life, your health? Let us know by going to AveMariaRadio.net and scrolling down to the poll of the week. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. Connection with Teresa Tomio. I often have people ask me, aren't you scared when you talk about the issues such as abortion or uh, all the different ideologies, especially the gender ideology? I say, I'm scared of what I don't say if I'm not using this platform that God gave me wisely and well. If I'm not sharing information with people, if I'm not sharing the truth of the Catholic faith, I'm going to be held accountable, as is any one of us who has a platform. And we all have a platform. The sizes and the extent are different, but every single person, especially if you have a computer and if you have a Facebook page or a Twitter account, you have a platform. And so we're all responsible to evangelize. And we may be fearful, but we move through that fear with trust that God is with us. He tells us he will give us the words. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio, Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. What is meditative prayer? The Catholic Catechism defines meditative prayer as, above all, a quest. The mind seeks to understand the why and how of the Christian life in order to adhere and respond to what the Lord is asking. Since the required attentiveness is difficult to sustain, we are aided by books such as Sacred Scripture, especially the Gospels, holy icons, liturgical texts of the day or season, and writings of the spiritual fathers. If we meditate on what we read, we make it our own. If we are humble and faithful in meditation, we discover in meditation the movements that stir the heart, enabling us to discern those movements. We are asking, Lord, what do you want me to do? There are as many methods of meditation as there are spiritual masters. The Catechism urges us to develop the desire to meditate regularly. All meditation should advance us to the knowledge of the love of the Lord Jesus. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Welcome back. 
Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. As I mentioned at the top of the hour, it seems almost implausible to me that we we're already at the second Sunday in ordinary time, but here we are. And I know that uh, Lent is fast approaching. As uh, is our want here at uh, Cresta in the Afternoon, we're going to have a reflection on this Sunday's Gospel where Jesus calls two disciples by asking them what they are looking for. They then tell their brothers that they have found the Messiah. To help us with this, uh, to understand more about it, I'm joined by Peggy Stanton, who's the author of From the White House to the White Cross. She's a dame of the Order of Malta. She was ABC News' first female Washington correspondent. She's hosted many programs on Ave Maria Radio, including the Malta Minute with the Catechism. And her newest book is The Order of Malta Minutes with the Catechism. And I know that she is certainly no stranger to this show. So, Peggy, welcome. Thank you, uh, Matthew. It's, it's good to talk with you again. It always Do I is. Hear you're in Rome or you're in Washington? Uh, I'm back in Washington. I had the, the privilege of spending Christmas uh, in Rome, uh, Ooh, as well as uh, to take part in the, the conference of marking the one year anniversary of Pope Benedict's passing. Oh, right. Uh, it was uh, a yeah. yeah, privilege to be there and also to spend uh, New Year's there. Uh, it's it always was, a great privilege to be there, though, isn't it? Hard to imagine, though, it's been a year already since uh, the passing of uh, Pope right. Benedict. Yeah. Well, here yeah. we are, as I, I mentioned, the second Sunday in Ordinary Time, and I know that uh, you have some great reflections on this, so let's start, if we could, with the, I'll just read uh, the Gospel, and then we can dive right in. So the reading for the Gospel is John chapter 1, 35-42. John was standing with two of his disciples, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard what he said and followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following him and said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they went and saw where Jesus was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, was one of the two who heard John and followed Jesus. He first found his own brother Simon and told him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated Christ. Then he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. So, Peggy, this is uh, the, the Lamb of God passage, as it's often described. Uh, mm -hmm. What's the scene here? What, what are we looking at? Well, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's... In some ways, it's a little confusing because we're we're thinking of the baptism in the Jordan, and it's certainly not clear here that this coincided at the same moment with the uh, baptism in the Jordan, because we're focusing on the calling of the apostles, and it's so remarkable, isn't it? Uh, I've always thought of that, even since I was a kid, that what was it that made those apostles drop everything at the moment he called and came to him. So, but my reflections, Matthew, are, are not my own. <laughs> I don't trust my own. <laughs> I go right to the catechism. Um, so, so paragraph 486 um, quotes the Acts of the Apostles in stating, the whole life of Christ will make manifest how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. 
the the baptism and the Didache Bible gives this summation of of a, a lot of the passages that I'm going to read from. Uh, Jesus is the Lamb of God in no need of repentance, but he came to be baptized to identify with sinful humanity. So then we go on to paragraph 536, which says the baptism of Jesus is on his part the acceptance and inauguration of his mission as God's suffering servant. He allows himself to be numbered among sinners. He is already the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Already he is anticipating the baptism of his bloody death Already he is coming to fulfill all righteousness. That is, he is submitting himself entirely to his Father's will. Out of love he consents to this baptism of death for the remission of our sins. The Father responds to the Son's acceptance, proclaiming his entire delight in his Son. The spirit whom Jesus possessed in fullness from his conception comes to rest on him. Jesus will be the source of the spirit for all mankind. And at his baptism, the heavens were opened, the heavens that Adam's sin had closed, and the waters were sanctified by the descent of Jesus and the spirit, a prelude to the new creation. Now, I, um, I'd like to hear just briefly before we go into 719 paragraph, your reflection, Matthew, as, as you listen to these several passages that I just read, it sounds uh, as if we're only talking about a human being, when in fact the Son is also God. But when we talk about the Father bestowing this and the Holy Spirit bestowing this, people might become confused. Do you think? Yeah, it, it's uh, a, a passage, though, that uh, we see John at work. Uh, it mm -hmm. says John standing with two of his disciples. Right. And as he always does, John sees himself as such a secondary figure. Mm -hmm. And that phrase of behold the Lamb of God, he, he mm -hmm. understood profoundly uh, mm -hmm. who Jesus was. And mm -hmm. that, that tells us in many ways what we need to know. And then as the passage progresses, the references to Messiah, which mm -hmm. is translated as it says in the passage, Christ. Mm -hmm. So this is the Messiah, the one they have been looking for. Right. But then it, it's always interesting to me how Christ is always in command of these of the passages but of these moments mm -hmm. where they say they ask him questions mm -hmm. and his his answers are always so decisive mm -hmm. come and you will see mm -hmm. it's an invitation but boy isn't it so much more than just an yeah. invitation right. it's a call right right don't you find that um, throughout history really I mean of course starting with Christ himself but um, messages from heaven mm -hmm. often are very, very subtle. There is so much meaning behind the apparent message. There's a lot of hidden nuance. Do you agree? Oh, absolutely. And, um, yeah, I know you'll be getting into uh, paragraph 719, yeah. but this, yeah. this idea that John, uh, John the Baptist 
is more than a profit. And mm-hmm. I know that that's an important aspect to understand. Uh, but this idea of coming forward to bear witness to the light. But then we, we talk about in these passages uh, that Christ as it says, allows himself to be numbered among mm-hmm. sinners. Mm-hmm. But he is already the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Mm-hmm. So already he understands. But it is the rest of us who have to come to that understanding. Right. And and I think um, when we say that it sounds as if he's uh, only referring to a human being who is refu- receiving this anointing from God even though he is God, it, it, the the uh, fact that John the Apostle said that he stripped himself of his mm-hmm. divinity, emptied himself of his divinity, so that when you read these things, you realize that that in ways that I don't know that we'll ever understand until we're on the other side, is that um, he. he he didn't want to feel things through his divinity. In order to really participate, he had to fully um, receive them through his humanity. Yeah, and, and that, that very technical term, of course, kenosis, of this self-emptying mm-hmm. of Christ that uh, we see put to such great effect by, by Paul in, I think it's the epistle to the, the mm-hmm. Philippians, uh, that he emptied himself. Mm-hmm. And, and yet, here in this passage, we see this at work, and, and it's a, a remarkable moment, I think. Yeah. Well, as you, you quoted part of it, uh, 719, paragraph 719 says, um, and we have used this before, but I think it bears uh, repeating with this gospel. John the Baptist is more than a prophet. In him, the Holy Spirit concludes his speaking through the prophets. John completes the cycle of prophets begun by Elijah. He proclaims the imminence of the consolation of Israel. He is the voice of the consoler who is coming. As the spirit of truth will also do, John came to bear witness to the light. In John, the spirit thus brings to completion the careful search of the prophets and fulfills the longing of the angels he and on whom you see the Spirit descend, John says, and remain, that is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I've seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Behold, the Lamb of God. In paragraph 1286, uh, in the Old Testament, the prophets announced that the Spirit of the Lord would rest on the hoped for Messiah for his saving mission. And of course, when the Holy Spirit comes down on a dove, that's <laughs> and rests on <laughs> Pretty clear, Jesus. yeah. Yeah, pretty clear. <laughs> <laughs> the descent of the Holy Spirit on Jesus at his baptism by John was the sign that he was indeed was the one to come, the Messiah, the Son of God and conceived of the Holy Spirit. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit his whole life, and his whole mission are carried out in total communion with the Holy Spirit, whom the Father gives him without measure. You know, uh, Matthew, when I was putting together um, these minutes with the catechism for Mm -hmm. the book that came out, um, I had this strong, strong instinct 
to uh, put in some, to draw some illustrations of the hidden life of Jesus. And, uh, you know, most, I, well, the, uh, the editors, um, publishers didn't think that was necessary with a catechism. But I have since read many times this year uh, references to Jesus' boyhood, childhood, mm -hmm. boyhood, uh, even his teen years, um, and I found myself that's exactly what the illustrations that I was doing, and I think I just have the sense, as the Catechism points out, uh, carefully points out, that Christ's whole mission, and we'll see that in a further paragraph, his whole life on earth he was carrying out his mission, not just in his Paschal, you know, in the Passion. He was carrying it out from babyhood on. Uh, he was the perfect man in modeling. So uh, I, I think that we're at a time when our Lord just really wants people to know what life was, you know, 30 years when you think about it, 30 years on this earth. What was he doing and, and why? Obviously, God had a reason for him being here for 30 years and only three years in his public life. Well, we have the, uh, here we are with John's gospel at uh, John 21. There are also many other things that Jesus did. Well, we're thinking about. Well, Peggy, thank you so much. And uh, everyone, uh, this is the gospel for the second Sunday in Ordinary Time. When we come back, I have a final reflection on somebody who passed away this week that we should get to know a little better. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. We are the pro-life generation, passionate about building the culture of life in our health care and in our nation. But not all health care options are equally pro-life, and some provide morally objectionable procedures. CMF Curo is different. CMF Curo is a pro-life Catholic healthcare ministry providing a pathway for its members to build the culture of life in their healthcare choices, not destroy it. Learn more about CMF Curo at MyCatholicHealthCare.com. That's MyCatholicHealthCare.com. Dr. Ray Garendi. What's looking back at you at age 22? What do you hope to say about that child at age 22? If you're content to say, well... The way kids are turning out nowadays, counting my blessings. Parole officer says one of the nicest children he has. Or would you rather say he's one in a hundred? Morals, compassion, seeks God. Are you prepared to be a one in a hundred parent then? You can't parent like the bulk of parents anymore. You will supervise far higher. You will screen out toxic media sewage at a rate unlike all of your friends perhaps your family. No guarantees as to what will be looking back at you at age 22. But you want to be able to say, I think he's one in a hundred. Then you be a one in a hundred parent. The wisdom of Mother Angelica. The devil will always do his best to tempt you into sin until you get to that place where you love sin. That's what he wants. He wants you down there with him. And not because he loves you, he hates you. When you do what the enemy tempts you to do, he does it out of pure hatred. EWTN. 
Live Truth. Live Catholic. Well, my thanks uh, to my guests for this hour, Shannon Mullen, the editor-in-chief of the National Catholic Register, and of course Peggy Stanton for her reflections on the gospel uh, this coming Sunday. There's one more story that I wanted to mention, and that is of a man who passed away on January 10th. Uh, He had suffered for many years with neurofibromatosis, which causes immense pain and also severe disfigurement. His name was Vinicio Riva. You may not recognize the name, but if you go back uh, to 2013, you'll recognize the face and a picture that became one of the iconic images of this pontificate under Pope Francis which Pope Francis embraced Vinicio Riva after a general audience in November. It was a moment of profound mercy on the part of Pope Francis, and it was a completely unexpected gesture that in so many ways changed Vinicio Riva's life. As he put it, after the Pope's embrace, Riva said he put aside all of the sorrows. So this is a man who had suffered intensely from the neurofibromatosis and had faced discrimination throughout his life. And in that one moment, that embrace from Pope Francis changed everything. And I think it's uh, something that uh, Pope Francis has been trying to teach all of us over the 10 years of this pontificate. As he said, he drew close to me and hugged me tightly. He gave me a kiss on my face. That finishes up uh, this first hour of Cresta in the Afternoon. Please don't go anywhere. We have a lot more ahead here on Cresta in the Afternoon. From the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And a very good afternoon and welcome to Cresta in the Afternoon. I am not Al Cresta. I am, however, Matthew Bunsen, filling in for Al today. Uh, For those of you who may not be familiar with me, I am Vice President and Editorial Director for EWTN News and also the creator of the documentary series Doctors of the Church uh, for EWTN. I mention that especially because uh, this is... We're on the cusp tomorrow. We celebrate the Feast of St. Hilary of Poitiers, a 4th century bishop and doctor of the church. He's a remarkable figure in part because he was so profoundly determined uh, to defend the truth of the divinity of Christ. But he did so as a convert in a very gentle and courteous way. He uh, devoted some of his greatest theology to the Trinity and was, uh, like his master, in being labeled a disturber of the peace. In a very troubled period in the church, uh, his holiness, his scholarship, his genius as Bishop of Poitiers, but also as a defender of the truth of the faith is something that we're still talking about, and it's one of the reasons why he was declared a doctor of the church. We're going to talk in this hour uh, with Mike Aquilina, friend and expert on the Fathers of the Church, of which uh, St. Hilary Poitiers is one. I mentioned that uh, there are a lot of crises, or were crises, in the life and times of St. Hilary Poitiers. Well, today is no different. We are looking at 
a number of crises facing us in the church, but especially in wider culture. And one of them is a relationship crisis. You can make the argument that the current relationship crises that we are facing as a country, as a, as a civilization, is a profoundly spiritual crisis. And only spiritual beings can have relationships which are rooted in the true spiritual faculties. What would John Paul II suggest for all of us in healing this crisis? We're going to be talking with Deacon David Delaney, Director and Senior Fellow at Mother of the America Institute. He's an incarnated in the personal ordinary to the chair of St. Peter. He's the author of a number of books in particular on the thought of Pope St. John Paul II. Uh, we need uh, St. John Paul II's uh, clarity today as a culture, as Catholics. There's obviously been a lot of discussion about uh, John Paul II, especially in the last week and his theology of the body. There's a lot that we can still learn from uh, this uh, late great pontiff. Also, uh, talking about additional crises, an Oregon woman was denied the opportunity to adopt a child because she refused to express support for gender ideology and homosexuality and filed a federal lawsuit. We're going to hear a lot more about that case from Andrea Pachodi Bear, who is a legal analyst for EWTN News. All of that coming up in this hour. Uh, but first, here's Steve Clark with the news. Thanks, Matthew. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News. For Friday, January 12th, it's the Feast of St. Marguerite Bourgeois. Today's news is brought to you by Ave Maria University. Your vocation location is at avemaria.edu. Winter weather is causing major issues at airports. Over 1,900 flights within, into, or out of the U.S. has been canceled so far, according to FlightAware. Over 4,500 flights have been delayed as well. Chicago airports have been severely impacted. The White House is defending recent U.S.-led military strikes against the Houthi rebels in Yemen. I would just remind that these were all uh, valid, uh, legitimate military targets, uh, all really aimed at going after the Houthis' ability to store, launch, uh, and guide uh, drones and missiles. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said the Iranian-backed militants instigated the airstrikes by continuing attacks on commercial shipping in the Red Sea. He said the U.S. doesn't seek a war with the Houthis, but the president will not hesitate to take any action to defend international commerce in the region. Hunter Biden now plans to testify behind closed doors in the impeachment inquiry of his father. An attorney for Hunter said the president's son will comply with congressional subpoenas for a deposition with Republican investigators if they issue a new one. This comes as House Republicans are preparing to vote to hold Hunter in contempt of Congress. Columbus, Ohio police say a man is in custody after he allegedly threatened to shoot up a church and then light it on fire. The incident happened on New Year's Eve. Cameron Tatum has been indicted on charges of making terroristic threats, including panic and aggravated menacing. And President Biden says federal student debt will be canceled for some who took out small loans. Those who got less than $12,000 in loans and have been paying them off for at least 10 years will see the remaining debt white out immediately. The move announced today applies to those who are enrolled in the SAVE repayment plan. From your AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Well, as I just mentioned, we are facing quite a few crises, uh, and one of them is in relationships, uh, which means also it is a crisis of the human person. And uh, we can turn to the great saints, we can turn to the great popes uh, for not just consolation, but a deeper understanding of what it means to be in a relationship crisis, to be 
crisis for ourselves as human persons. So we can ask ourselves at this point then, what would John Paul II say? What remedies would he offer? And there's a lot uh, to say uh, regarding Pope John Paul II. And to help us learn a bit more about that, I'm joined by Deacon David Delaney, who's Director and Senior Fellow at Mother of America's Institute. He's incarnated, as I mentioned, in the personal ordinariate of the Chair of St. Peter. He's the author of Viri Dignitatum, Personhood, Masculinity, and Fatherhood in the Thought of John Paul II. David, welcome. Thank you, Matthew. I really appreciate you having me on. Well, to talk about the human person now, uh, we almost can't have that conversation without going back to John Paul II, who devoted so much of his pontificate from 1978 to uh, his death in, in 2005, warning us about the threats to the human person. And here we are, apparently not having listened to a word he said, it seems, where not only do we now have threats to the human person, but we seem almost unable to define the human person. How prophetic was he? Yeah, he, he, in some ways, I suppose he, we could say he was prophetic, but he lived through the, uh, the problem. He was able to see this in his life. Uh, when he, in his upbringing, he really saw what seemed to be an impossibility, right, with the kind of the European Enlightenment mindset, uh, you know, of the time that, uh, you know, that we'd, we'd gotten over superstition and, and reason is going to uh, save uh, save the world. The Second World War that he experienced, um, you know, was uh, like the, the last nail in the coffin to this kind of uh, naivete. Uh, and the way that he experienced this, um, you know, this crushing um, oppression of, uh, of what should have been really this enlightened uh, society led him to look at more and more the uh, the problem of understanding what it means to be human and especially human personhood and, and i really do think that the crisis comes about because of a confusion about what it means to be a person and i will say that where we are today uh, in many ways uh, they're the ill fruits of what happened you know, maybe a century or, or more ago in the ivory towers of academia. Uh, the, the way that we think and the way we talk about what it means to be human, even in terms of academia, will have impact on us uh, at a later time. And this, I think, is really what St. John Paul sees. And, and while he was he's devoted most of his time to pastoral and practical application of overcoming the implications of what had happened, he also recognized that what we weren't doing is offering enough of a, um, in, in terms of academic thought, in terms of this theoretical understanding of the human person, enough in academia to be able to turn back this wave of confusion. Yeah, you write, uh, and I want to direct everyone to the Catholic World Report uh, to an article on the crisis of the human person, St. John Paul II's remedy that uh, you can find at, uh, I think it's uh, catholicworldreport.com. I want to quote this briefly. Is that You write that societal and personal consequences of the person cut loose and set adrift from his concrete, enduring existence and dignity continued to be grave. In the 20th century, it was the short-circuiting of a predominant Christian ethos that permitted the systematic annihilation of millions in Nazi concentration camps, perhaps tens of millions in communist re-education camps, and today it results in hundreds of millions worldwide each decade through abortion. You tie all of this together, but you make that important jump backwards 
to what we saw in terms of what you referred to as post-Cartesian reduction of human personhood, as well as uh, names like Nietzsche, German National Socialism, and Soviet Universal Socialism. Talk about how we got here in that regard. You talk about academia, but it, it's striking, isn't it, uh, how all of this happened relatively so quickly in human history? Yeah, it it really does. I think that what you're a much better historian than I am, so I won't uh, delve so much on the historical development, but really on the, I suppose, a little bit of the uh, philosophical and theological genealogy. Uh, we begin really there throughout human history. There has always been this recognition of there's something not quite right with us, and more often than not, without thinking about it very clearly, the the blame gets put on the body, and there begins this division, if you will, between body and soul, and this this is what uh, St. John Paul II refers to as. Um, you know, well, it's a Manichaean dual, dualism that takes on a, a new light. It has kind of the same uh, same consequences, but there's a new look at it in, the, in what he calls in this Enlightenment dualism or this post-Cartesian dualism after Descartes. This uh, once again, which Christianity helps to recognize that uh, we are one thing in terms of our nature, body and soul. Uh, but at the same time, the previous you know ways that we articulate this about human nature has has become unsatisfactory for modern for modern years and so this need to understand more deeply about the dynamics especially when we develop after the enlightenment much more of a sense of uh, the individual you know individuality and the, the dignity of the individual person as a member of the um, of the community becomes almost separated. We separate the community from the individual. This, these are happening uh, throughout, it begins with the Renaissance humanism, but it's especially during the Enlightenment. In the United States, we experience this most, most viscerally, I would say. Uh, but this inability to recognize that what it means to be human if we separate these two, we end up focusing so much on the body. We become we become practical materialists, and this is really, really the the ethos of you know of what's considered scientific now. You, mm-hmm. if you, if you're not a philosophical materialist, you're considered to be superstitious. Uh, these are all these are all significant problems that Saint John Paul II sees, but he starts to bring in. The, in his look at these problems in this contemporary time frame, that there's a further distinction that needs to start to be looked at. And this is the distinction between what it means to be a, a human being, of what we are, our nature, and a human person. Uh, we know that these two have to be distinct. It just Christology shows us this, right? It, it shows us that in Jesus Christ, we have one person who's divine, no human person, and who is fully divine in his human nature, but also, I mean, sorry, he's fully divine in his divine nature, but he's fully human in his human nature. So how can you have a human being, Jesus Christ, who's not a human person? There's a distinction about personhood, and here lies buried all the, you know, all of the issues of individualism that gets, without an 
proper articulation of who-ness as distinct from whatness, it's buried, it's lost, and we continually return back to materialism. And in this, if we're simply a body, we're simply just material there to be crushed, recycled, and turned over again. The only, I think, St. John Paul II saw, saw the only advantage to this. It was a compelling advantage, but the only advantage to this mindset was it cut us free from morality, of having mm-hmm. to think about what is right and wrong. Um, but there's no other upside to it, and we're now start, starting to experience the, the downside of it. In uh, Redemptor Hominis, uh, John Paul II's first really great, one of the many, many great encyclicals that he wrote, but it became a kind of blueprint for his pontificate. He, and uh, this is the word that I want to throw out to you, where he writes that man cannot live without love. He remains a being that is incomprehensible for himself. His life is senseless if love is not revealed to him, if he does not encounter love, if he does not make it his own, if he does not participate intimately in it. This, as has already been said, is why Christ the Redeemer fully reveals man to himself. We seem to have an extremely malnourished understanding of what love is today. We do. We've reduced it to its affective fruits. Um, and and then completely distorted than even what those affective fruits really are saying. Love, St. John Paul II shows, is it actually has become the reverse of what love is. Love, when it's reduced to its affective fruits, reduces the other to a means to an end, and we use one another for those fruits. We And the irony is we don't get the fruits of love, and this is, I think, part of the big I mean, this is why we are starting to realize that there's something wrong. It seems like life is this great parody of what it promises. The capacity to experience joy, joy is the only thing that can free us. The experience of joy is the only thing that can free us experientially from the the siren song of, uh, of concupiscent um, desire, of concupiscent uh, pleasures. We have to come to recognize that the only way we do that is rightly defining love and then acting on it. And the definition of love is that we act, we willingly act towards the other without regard, without taking an account of what we get out of it. And I call this the Trinitarian paradox. Mm -hmm. The point is, is the more we give ourselves away, the more disinterested we are in the way we act towards others, the more we become ourselves, the more we get ourselves out of it. Out. This is this St. John Paul II simply refers to as the logic of the gift. The law of the gift, I think, is the way um, George Weigel uh, defines it. it. It's easy to see, and it's easy to verify from our experiences, but it's so very hard to live. But there's no way we're going to be able to live it if we don't adequately define it. Define it and also then be able to explain it and pass it on to the next generations, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. So as we, uh, we have just a, f- a few seconds left, uh, where can people find your article, and what would be your first recommendation for somebody who wants to read more about the, the genius of John Paul II? <laughs> wow. Well, I, I to, uh, let me answer the first question. The article is, uh, is available, as you said, on CatholicWorldReport.com. Um, there are a couple articles there. Um, there are a lot. There are very many good 
resources and very many good sources I would say for understanding more about yep. St. John Paul's Let's start with the how about Redemptor Hominis? I, that's yeah. Perfect. And now the EWTN Family Prayer with Father Joseph. Family, a prayer that we pray together is a powerful prayer. So please pray together with me our EWTN family prayer. Today we pray for the caregivers of the sick. O most holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we adore you. You have first loved us, and through your Son you have taught us the excellence of self-giving love. Give to those who are caregivers of a sick parent or child, brother or sister, the assistance of your holy angels. Lessen their burdens and give them great joy in practicing a work of mercy. And since charity is never forgotten by you, reveal to them their heavenly reward. Amen. Why is the calling on the name of Jesus so powerful? According to the Catholic Catechism, to pray Jesus is to invoke him and to call him within us. We are welcoming the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. A simple invocation developed through tradition in both East and West and transmitted by the spiritual writers of the Sinai, Syria, and Mount Athos is, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us sinners. Through this prayer, the human heart is open to human wretchedness and the Savior's mercy. Invoking the holy name of Jesus is the simplest way of praying always. If the heart is humbly attentive, the prayer is not lost by heaping up empty phrases. It holds fast to the word and brings forth fruit with patience. The prayer of the church also honors the heart of Jesus and the way of the cross, which we call making the stations. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. He was a doctor of the church and one of the most famous saints of all time. Matthew Bunsen and the doctors of the church. St. Augustine is honored for his immense contributions to theology, but he balanced his genius with humility. Once declared it was pride that changed angels into devils, it is humility that makes men as angels. He died in 461. For more about the doctors of the church, visit doctorsofthechurch.com. Back by popular demand is our trip through Portugal, Spain, and France. We start with a day in Fatima, following all the steps of the Little Shepherds. Santiago de Compostela, the ending point for the El Camino, is the home of the largest incenser. Visit the tomb of St. James the Apostle. Three days in Lourdes, which is quite indescribable. You'll have to come and see it to believe it. To learn more about your Ave Maria Radio trip, find the Ave Maria Radio travel tab at AveMariaRadio.net. Accidents are the leading cause of life-threatening injuries, but few Americans are prepared. My Life Angels creates your pro-life healthcare durable power of attorney, accessible anytime on smartphones, and alerts loved ones if you enter a hospital ER, empowering them to protect you. You can protect yourself and your family. Use code AVE at checkout today, and My Life Angels will donate 35% of your initial membership to Ave Maria Radio. More information at MyLifeAngels.com. 
This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. Back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Matthew Bunsen filling in for Al today. Well, tomorrow we celebrate the Feast of St. Hilary of Poitiers, a 4th century bishop and doctor of the church. For those uh, who may not be that familiar with him, uh, and indeed he's a somewhat obscure figure, which is one of the reasons I was so happy to be able to talk about St. Hilary today. He was a bishop of Poitiers. He died around 367. Uh, he has been referred to at times as the Malleus Arianorum, the Hammer of the Arians, and the St. Athanasius of the West. That's a, a, quite a title to bestow upon him, given the stature of St. Athanasius or St. Athanasius. To help us uh, learn more about St. Hilary, I have the great pleasure of being joined by Mike Aquilina. He's the author of, to say that he's the author of several books is an injustice to books. He is the author, I think I've lost track, so I'll have to ask him exactly uh, how many books he's written at this point. He is also the executive vice president of the St. Paul Center and a contributing editor to Angelus News. He's hosted at least about a dozen or so series on EWTN. He appears weekly on the Sunrise Morning Show. And I have the particular privilege of calling him one of my closest friends. Mike Aquilino, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me on, Matt. So I'm assuming that uh, your next book is being published while we're on the air, because they, they seem to be churned out with such remarkable regularity. Uh, how many books is it now? I, you know, I can't give you a number. I know it's, it's more than 70. Okay, there you go. You, you <laughs> gave me a piece of advice many, many, many years ago. You said the key to success in writing is write one good book and then riff off of it forever. <laughs> that seems to be the case with me. My, my my dad used to say, my kid's got a good racket. He'd say, he, he finds the writings of people who've been dead for 2,000 years, and then he publishes them as his own, and he gets all the royalties. Well, they don't <laughs> need them. racket. <laughs> it's your racket. So part of that racket is talking about figures like Hilary Poitier. Oh, but that's a pleasure. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's one of the perks, right? Yeah. Now, I, I was so happy that you could join me today uh, because St. Hilary's in the, the constellations of doctors of the church and even fathers of the church, I, I've always had the impression that St. Hilary's gotten sort of a, not a bad rap, but he's somewhat overshadowed by some of the other titanic figures of the era. Yeah, and I think there's a reason for that. I, I, um, a friend of mine who's, who's, who's a scholar of languages told me that Hillary's Latin is so idiosyncratic that it's, it's just a labor to, to translate it. Uh, he's not as easy as Augustine or, or Ambrose. And so, so much of his work has never been translated into English, even though he's this giant in history. People don't translate him. I had a friend who um, who started a Hillary translation. He wanted to to translate his commentary on the Psalms, but it was so quirky, he said, <laughs> and so idiomatic, and so uh, uh, 
local. It's a local dialect, he said, and, and it's just a hard thing to manage. And I think that's why we don't know much about him, because, because he's not studied much, because people can't read him. So he was born in what then was Gallia Narbonensis, uh, a province in the Roman Empire in the West, in probably a town called Pictavium, and so it would be Poitiers or Portier. Mm-hmm. At the end of regessing, or the early part of the 4th century, and his parents were pagans, uh, but he received a very good education. So set the scene a little bit about what he grew up in, uh, because this is a province of the Roman Empire in the 4th right. century. So yeah, he's out there. Uh, it's not quite the sticks. I mean, Gaul was was one of the most important provinces in the empire, and it was uh, it was very developed. It had a a long and storied history, and uh, and and so he he lived there, and he did get a good education, and he worked as an orator, as a lawyer essentially, but also to to teach people to speak well. So so he he was he was an instructor too. And he had, he got married. He had a he had a wife, and he had a child, uh, um, and uh, and and he 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 kind of what we today we would say he read his way into the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. You know, he um, he was a pagan, but he was he was open to the faith that by then was taking taking over the world. You know, Christianity had been legal for about twenty thirty years at the time when he started. Uh, his interest in it had been legal, it was above ground, and so he would have had many opportunities uh, to, to see it, to attend the liturgy, to, um, to get to know get to know what Christians believed. And he, uh, he came to accept it and became very active in the Church. His family was dedicated to the care of the poor. His daughter especially, though she was a small child, became something of a local celebrity because she... she cared so much for the poor, and she gave so much of her life to the service of the poor. Uh, so he, he just became known for uh, for being a Christian, being a saint, being a good man uh, there within the Christian community. It said that uh, when he became a Christian, he and his wife uh, took, uh, they consecrated their lives to God, and they, they lived uh, essentially a celibacy within marriage ever after that. Well, when the bishop died. The local bishop died. The uh, the local Christians there in uh, in Poit- what we call Poitiers today, uh, Pictavium, uh, in those days, they they made him bishop by acclamation. Mm-hmm. They made it clear that they wanted him, and then it was approved, and he was ordained to be their bishop. Paging so, uh, St. Ambrose. So kind of a remarkable story. <laughs> yeah, very similar to St. Ambrose. Yes. Yes, but St. Ambrose had been raised in a Christian home. Right. And he had, you know, it was a devout home. He just had not yet been baptized, because that was the fashion at the time. Yeah, so here he is, a bishop, in the middle of what I think we can safely describe as a crisis. Yes, yes. You know, the, the, uh, the Arian uh, heresy had been, had, had been causing a lot of strife through the entire century, uh, you know, this was the, this was started in the in the early 300s by Arius, who was a priest in Alexandria in Egypt, and Arius claimed that God the Father was not co-eternal and co-equal with the Son; that the Father was the the one true God, and and the Son was kind of godish. Okay, God was the creator, and the Son was a creature. 
the first of the creatures, the greatest of creatures, but just a creature. And this was going against the, the faith as it had been known and lived and practiced for hundreds of years by then. But it became terribly popular because it, 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 it was logical. No one was claiming a trinity that made you say, yes, three equals one. You know, there was no mystery like that at the heart of it. Uh, uh, but Arius was a, a great preacher and a great promoter, and he was very good at uh, playing politics. And so he um, he managed to influence a lot of influencers, and he had a lot of help from political important people, uh, who um, who helped him to spread his uh, his heresy. So the heresy kind of waxed and waned over a hundred years almost. And and Hillary's in the middle of this, uh, and he's living in the West where the the Arian heresy was weaker. Than it was than than it was in the East, uh, but but he's on he's on the side of the apostles. He's on the side of the traditional faith, and he's opposing uh, Arianism in in Gaul at that time. Uh, now the emperor was Constantius II, and the emperor was an Arian, and so he wants the West to come around to his way of thinking. He wants the the West to adopt this heresy, and so he put a lot of pressure on the bishops in the West the bishops in Gaul, uh, to, uh, to, to come around and, uh, and be Arians. And Hillary resisted this, and that got him exiled. What I love about the story of his exile is he was sent from Gaul to Phrygia and earned there the, the title of the Athanasius or Athanasius of the West. But they, they clearly miscalculated in this exile, didn't they? Because he became yes. more of a thorn in their side in the East than he did in the West. Yes. And 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 it's interesting. I, I I think you you mentioned that history calls him the Athanasius of of the West, and I think that's kind of unfair, uh, and it's kind of untrue, really, because he, in in his personality, he wasn't like Athanasius. Mm-hmm. Athanasius was a f- fierce, uncompromising man, right? And and he he uh, he saw everything in terms of black and white, and if you weren't with him, you were against him, and you were you were a heretic. You were an Aryan, and he did not make nice distinctions when he was talking about things that were very important, um, like like orthodoxy and heresy. Now, Hillary was a was a, a more a more subtle thinker, and when he was in the East, he came to understand that people were opposing the Nicene Creed for a lot of reasons. Some of them agreed with the substance of the creed. But they didn't like the phrasing of it. Okay, now Athanasius would have said, "Too bad, you're Arians. <laughs> you know, get out of here. Yeah, right. He's not going to make these nice distinctions." But Hillary listened to these people, and he he found out the many reasons that people uh, were disagreeing with one another at the time, and he tried to sort them out, and he tried to work with the people to the degree that he could. He never compromised. Would never compromise the language of religion, but. He did try to to uh, cooperate with people he could he could work with uh, and uh, and 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 do what he could. He was a remarkable man. You know, I think what he discovered when he went east is what uh, Saint Basil described in one of his works. He said that the the present time, because Basil and Hillary were contemporaries, mm-hmm. he said that the present time is like a naval battle. It's a naval battle where these two sides are passionately against one another, and 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 they're fighting fiercely against each other. And it's nighttime, 
They can barely see, and they don't know, really, whether the man standing next to them is friend or foe. And not only that, the ship is on fire, so there's smoke everywhere, and it's raining. <laughs> it goes on, and he piles on all of these these conditions, you know, atmospheric conditions that make it difficult for people to see one another, to understand one another, to listen to one another. Those were the real conditions of the time. People weren't listening to each other. And so they really didn't know what the others were thinking. They were just yelling at each other. And so they couldn't make any progress. They couldn't make any, any advance that would, that would make people say, aha, I see what you mean. You know, here's how we fix the situation. I think that Hillary was the man who, 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 uh, who really brought an end to those conditions. And he did it by, listen, by learning Greek very well while he was in exile meeting all different kinds of people all along the spectrum and listening to them very well so that he could articulate their position even better than they could. Yeah, and and his pleas for debate, uh, but it would have been a courteous debate. And and that's a lesson for us today, isn't it? Yes, yes, absolutely. That's where we are. Well, Mike, as always, a joy to talk to you. And we need to to catch up one of these days. (laughs) Yes, yes. Mike Aquilina. Stay tuned. We have a lot more ahead here on Cresta in the Afternoon. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Fund. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Millions of people have kicked off 2024 by making the traditional New Year's resolutions. Are you one of them? Are they related to your faith? your home life, your health, let us know by going to imariaradio.net and scrolling down to the poll of the week. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. Father Benedict Groeschel. I often go back to my childhood in church We love to be reverent to Christ present in the Eucharist, to Christ on the cross. But I was also impressed by the reverence of my friends in the Salvation Army. They had a little band. 
And I used to walk past the band on Sunday morning on my way to church. And I was just a child. But I said, you know, they're trying to pray to God. They're showing reverence to God. All this was reverence. Now what do I see? I hear one irreverence after another. And week after week, month after month, the media churns out things that make fun of religion in general and make fun of Christianity in particular, and particularly make fun of the Catholic Church. No class. Absolutely no class. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. The Heart of the Interior Life with Elizabeth Jingle. In the fourth rule of the 14 rules for the discernment of spirits, St. Ignatius of Loyola describes spiritual desolation. Detailing an aspect of spiritual desolation, he writes, and as if separated from one's creator and Lord. Father Timothy Gallagher explains this aspect. Ignatius is highlighting a fundamental characteristic of spiritual desolation. While it endures, any felt consciousness of God's loving presence is weakened or absent, and such persons feel as if they were separated from God. God is with us, despite the lack of feeling that He is with us. God is with us when we feel isolated, alone, and as if no one cares. Instead of continuing to allow the spiritual desolation to isolate us, the invitation is to open our hearts to communion with God's heart. What will be your prayer of communion with God today? For more information, visit AveMariaRadio.net. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Matthew Bunsen, uh, filling in for Al today. Well, an Oregon mother of five has appealed a court's ruling against her in a case that is alleging that the government is religiously discriminating against her by refusing to allow her to adopt children from the state system. It is uh, basically because uh, she refused to express support for gender ideology and homosexuality and filed a federal lawsuit. A district court ruled against her in November, but she has appealed. What are the ramifications for this? Where are we headed with cases like this? And what does this tell us, uh, not just about the justice system here in the United States and different states, but also is this reflective of some of the trends that we're seeing globally? And what are the implications of that for religious freedom for all of us? Andrea Pachotti Bear is uh, joining me. She is legal analyst for EWTN News. She also directs the Conscience Project and is a fellow at the Institute for Human Ecology at Catholic University of America. You can follow her, and I encourage you to do so on Twitter, at Bear Pachotti. And you can also visit the ConscienceProject.org. She's also a great friend. Andrea, welcome. Thanks so much for having me on, Matthew, and thank you for adding that. I think that's one of my most favorite things to claim, is that that you and I are good friends. We are. Well, here we are with uh, what seems like another day, another lawsuit, seemingly originating again from uh, the northwest uh, portions of the country, the, the, the left coast. I, not to besmirch anyone who happens to live on the west coast, I did for many years. But why are we seeing so many cases coming out of Denver, out of Oregon, out of Washington State, and also out of California? You know, part of it is that these are large states that are pushing a progressive agenda, right? They're elected officials, and, and the, the people are trying to promote this idea, particularly with regard to the promotion of gender ideology. And I'm sure all of your listeners are aware of, of kind of this curious creep that has happened in the last um, 
two years where the the idea is to promote the idea of a human person that is almost self-directed. It's detached or detangled from your physical reality, your biological reality, and that especially for young people, that um, gender, in quotes, in scare quotes, um, can be decided um, by a young person. Um, the thing that's most invidious, and, and I don't think it's just on the West Coast, we're seeing it here in Washington with proposed rules related to federal um, foster care guidelines, is that the idea of what is a safe and appropriate home is being defined as one that affirms a young person's gender identity, even if that's in conflict with their biological reality. And um, it's, it's frightening when you see it play out um, to its extremes, in particular in what's going on in that case that you mentioned, Matthew, in Oregon. Just to pop back for a second, because this is a question that I get asked all the time. Uh, how is it possible for a five-year-old, for a seven-year-old, or a ten-year-old to make the life-altering, life-changing decision uh, that they're the wrong gender? Yeah, I don't think it's possible. And I actually don't think it's possible for anyone... Um, you know, at any age to do so. And, and the church has been pretty clear on that. There are people who do struggle with gender dysphoria. And as Catholics and, and the church in general, we need to support and encourage their proper understanding of themselves and, and walk with them into recovering a, an understanding of themselves um, as God created them. But really what is, what is happening is this idea that... Um, a child can decide. If anyone anyone that's listening knows a, that as a parent, oftentimes our kids want to do all sorts of crazy things and think all sorts of in, in, crazy things about themselves. And the job as the adults in the room is to guide them to a proper understanding of themselves and to lead them on a pathway where they can flourish as human beings. Um, the the in, interesting. Um, situation going on in Oregon, the, the materials that have come out in looking at the case involving this woman, Jessica Bates, who wanted to adopt kids that are uh, younger than her, her youngest child, so under the age of 10, wanted to adopt a pair of siblings, which is a really um, wonderful uh, contribution on her part. Um, the state is saying, you know, we never know when someone's going to come to understand their gender identity. And even though children, you know, 10 years and under um, don't have that realization typically yet, they might in the future. So we need to make sure that whatever household they're going to be adopted into is one that's prepared to, quote unquote, affirm that, that dysphoria. Um, and so anyone that's not willing to play that game isn't someone that can be certified as an adoptive parent in Oregon. But would I be wrong in saying that it, the assumption is that they will, that somehow they're going to wake up one morning and realize, oh, I'm the wrong gender, or and or that idea is actually going to be planted or suggested to them uh, because that's what we're seeing more and more within the American educational system. Now, I think, Matthew, you're absolutely right. Now, there have been um, claims both by the Biden administration and references um, from the state of Oregon in this litigation that 30 percent 
of children in foster care or that are not in their families, homes of their families of origin, you identify as some form of LGBTQ plus identification. Um, but I think that there's something more um, true, which is there's a phenomenon called contagion. Yes. Right? Where, where um, I think that's having a very important role here, where young people, especially young people who have suffered abuse, neglect um, in their, their own families of origin, they're being drawn by an ideology that's trying to help them make sense of the hurt that they have. Um, and again, as people of faith, we know that, that really those wounds will only be healed by Christ and by an abundance of love and by embracing God's beautiful creation in ourselves, um, not by seeking alternative answers. So there's a really um, kind of like a bandwagon issue going on, not just in the foster care setting, but with young people in general, um, that instead of working through the hard hard problems of, of growing up, especially when there's been um, wounds and injury in, in our childhood, we're being offered, we're, or we're offering to young people false solutions. Now, we can add uh, that, as this case would seem to indicate, that the things that you just said in terms of Christ, in terms of helping a child to grow, that, that there are elements, including some, I'm assuming, within the, the federal government now, and certainly on a number of state level governments, that that could be potentially criminalized, what you just said. Yeah, well, I mean, we're, we're seeing it in the very beginning stages, right? But things move really quickly when it comes with, with bad ideas. Um, bad ideas tend to <laughs> yes. grow like Talking about contagions, yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so, so what we're seeing right now is, as I mentioned before, what's being defined by the federal government and some of our state governments as far as a safe and appropriate home for foster care or for adoption um, are these gender-affirming um, signals that and what that means is that a, that a prospective parent agrees to use quote unquote preferred pronouns allow a child to dress according to their gender identity and not consistent with their biological reality and in Oregon they even wanted um, families to agree to bring children to pride parades and to agree to bring a child for any kind of medical interventions um, these are unproven interventions and have a whole host of problems that we're seeing from people who are detransitioning. But they're asking these parents um, to basically agree to that. Now, it doesn't mean that they're going to criminalize uh, a person who, who refuses. What they'll do is they won't allow that person to foster. Mm -hmm. They won't allow that person to adopt. But I can see it playing out in custody cases or in cases where a child is... Um, claiming a gender identity and claiming to be abused by a family that doesn't affirm that, um, that the state would take the child into their own custody. You know, you can just see it kind of quickly spiraling downwards. Um, right. and, that's, and that's where we've we really got to nip it in the bud while we can speak into the truth um, about the human person and point out that families of faith, um, historically, especially... Um, Catholics in the Catholic Church have been there for orphaned and abandoned children. We're not going to, to 
get out of the business anytime soon. And and the research has shown that families of faith, Christian families in particular, um, stick it out a lot longer in fostering fostering children, especially ones who have really significant behavioral issues or hard-to-place children or siblings. Um, and so we're here for, for the long run. We're here for these children, and we're not going to go down quietly. Yeah, especially at a time when, uh, in Europe in particular, there seems to be a whole-scale, large-scale retreat from this plowing ahead with these surgeries and, and other things uh, they euphemistically refer to as gender-affirming care for minors. But at the same time, I wanted to get your, your take um, on the news about the, the Scottish government that announced a consultation on a piece of draft legislation that would ban what they call conversion practices. We're hearing, perhaps unreliably, but we're hearing that part of that could include criminal charges uh, for parents who, based on what they're describing, are trying to parent. You know, Matthew, I do think that it's it's a legitimate concern. The legislation is um, does put some criminal penalties for anyone that um, it tries to impose quote unquote conversion therapy, um, and people say, well, will that apply to parents? And and it, you know, there's some back and forth of no, no, it's got a reasonableness clause to it. It's not going to be, you know, incarcerating parents. But boy, we've seen some really terrible situations recently in Europe where people um, doing reasonable things like praying in front of abortion clinics are being arrested. So I think that it's important um, that we we sound the alarm. I'm glad that groups like the Alliance Defending Freedom um, not only is representing Jessica Bates in Oregon, but is on the case in Scotland. Um, and I think that it's really, it's, it's very bizarre, as you mentioned before, um, to see that many of these you know, gender clinics are being closed for the grave harm that they were inflicted on young people in Europe. And at the same time, progressive politicians in some of these countries continue to promote the cause. Right. Um, it seems like they're not paying attention to the science. <laughs> Heaven forbid, right? Well, at, at the same time, here in the U.S., we have uh, the news that the Biden administration has announced an, a, a new rule change uh, that could threaten the rights of religious doctors and healthcare providers uh, who are trying to act on their good conscience and are refusing to perform abortions and transgender surgeries. What's that about? Well, this is really, if we remember back in, um, prior to the, the Trump administration and the Obama administration, the famous battle of the little sisters of the poor, right, to refuse to include abortion pills in their employee health care plans um, in the face of the demands of the contraceptive mandate, the Affordable Care Act's interpretation by the Department of Health and Human Services that, that employers had to include contraceptives. This is a fight that the Biden administration is trying to win. I think they're going to fail miserably. Well, and I know that you're on the case, so uh, that's uh, going to be very helpful for the future. Andrea Pachotti bear great talking with you, and I know that everyone can follow you in various places, but let's send them to Twitter or X, at Bear Pichotti. Thanks so much, Andrea. Thanks, Matthew. Dr. Ray Garendi. What's the definition of frustration? Frustration is the difference between the way it is 
and the way you want it to be. It's hard to change the way it is. The way it is sometimes is other people, life, circumstances. The way you want it to be is in your power to change. You can close the gap between reality and what you want. The smaller that gap, the less your frustration. It is always easier to change oneself than to change reality. Frustration isn't always what happens out there. It is how we look at what happens out there. Christ is the answer with Father John Ricardo. Are you passionate about Jesus? Are you zealous for Jesus? Are you fervent for Jesus? Are we fervent for the gospel? Are we passionate about helping this world come to know him? Is that true? It's not true for most people in the church. Is Jesus my best friend? Is he your best friend? I'm looking around the church. There's a set of guys in here who have great man caves. As I was praying this morning, I felt like the Lord said, hey, when are you going to come to my man cave? <laughs> like, you guys think a flat screen TV is really cool. Well, you should see what I got to offer. Because I and I alone, he says, can really give you what it is you're longing for. Whoever it is we're rooting for right now, they're, they're going to lose eventually. Or whatever it is that's occupying our time, one day we're going to realize it really wasn't that important. Why aren't we hanging out with the one who alone can show us what life is really all about? When was the last time you hung out in the Lord's man cave? My great thanks to my guests in this hour, uh, including uh, Deacon David Delaney and his reflections on the crisis of the human person and the remedies that uh, Pope St. John Paul II can offer us, and Andrea Pachotti bear legal analyst for EWTN News, talking about an Oregon mother whose appeals court ruling in religious discrimination adoption cases is something that we need to be following. Those two obviously tie together as we are losing sight of the human person. And that brings us back to St. Hilary of Poitiers, bishop and doctor whose feast day is tomorrow. Let's uh, remember his conviction, his proclamation, uh, as he wrote, Let me, in short, adore you, our Father, and your Son, together with you. A privilege to be with you, as always. Uh, great to fill in for Al. I could never replace him. And my particular thanks uh, to everyone uh, here at Cresta in the Afternoon, the producers, Bryant and others, who make this job easy even for me. Take care and God bless. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.